Go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the text up on the screen behind me in a little bit. Uh, if you're new to the Bible but you have one, look on your neighbor, cheat a little bit, or drop the shame and check out the table of contents at the very front. And you can find Philippians pretty quick. The big numbers, 1, 2, 3, Philippians chapter 3. If you don't own a Bible, don't have access to a Bible outside of this place, uh, I'd love to help you fix that. Um, we value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe that it's the primary means by, why, by which God reveals himself to a, a fallen world. We believe it's effectual and does what God intends it to do. And so uh, the pastor in the room gets to say, hey, read your Bible. It'll do something, all right? Because it will. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, I got a case of them in the office. We can do something about that. We also, coincidentally enough, have a lost and found out in the hallway. And if, so if you want a really nice Bible, <laughs> there's some out there. You just have to scratch the name off, but it'd be good. There's some fancy ones out there. Um, you think I'm kidding. I'm not. We need somebody to take those Bibles home. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling On the Same Page. Uh, the premise is pretty simple, pretty self-explanatory. Um, we are walking through major vocabulary words in the life of the church. Words like worldview and sin and gospel and baptism and uh, worship and uh, mission and all these kinds of things and so uh, we are firmly planted in that series. Uh, I think it's been valuable. The, the reason why we're doing it is because we got people from a bunch of different backgrounds in here, uh, myself included. I'm one of the newest people here. You may have noticed that I, I sound funny when I talk. All right? um, and so uh, we have different cultural backgrounds, different experiential backgrounds, uh, different ethnic backgrounds, just generationally, demographically. We're kind of all over the place. Even within you know, various Christian traditions, we've all kind of found ourselves in this one room. And so uh, it's important for us when major words that are supposed to carry weight and meaning to us are thrown out in the ether that we're all kind of thinking the same thing. And so we've been walking through that, and I think it's been valuable. And so we're just going to jump right into it this morning, and we're going to talk about a new word. Uh, it's a word that some people hear on a regular basis, and some people never hear. It's just kind of what, whatever circle you run in. It's the wor word worldview, and I'm already tripping over my own tongue this morning. It's the word worldview. How many of y'all know what a worldview is? Yeah, see, some people have every, some people live in the idea of thinking of worldviews, and some of y'all probably never come across it before. Uh, but it is a word that, no matter who you are, it, it absolutely affects everything in the world. All right, so when I say worldview, I want you to be thinking this new eyes. New eyes. All right, so if you don't know what a worldview is, it's the way you see the world. Brilliant, right? <laughs> Probably a better definition is it's the construct through which you see the world. Like, let me give you an example. Some people are optimists, other people are. Yeah, and so everything they think about, see, make sense of around them is either positive or negative, right? Some people view everything in the world through the lens of politics, right? Some people view it through art. Some people, every single thing in their life, they are structuring their whole day around how something affects them in an economic sense, right? Or how it affects them in a social sense. A worldview is the thing that you build your life around because it's the thing you value most and makes sense of everything else in relation to. 
All right, uh, a worldview is the thing you see the world through. Another word that um that you'll probably hear me say from time to time, uh, and I already said it this morning, is lenses. It's the lenses through which you you see the world through. And I've actually got a few sets of lenses up here. I've got my favorite pair of sunglasses. It's hard to put them on with this microphone. I've traveled the world in these babies. They've seen the Philippines. I've sat on a beach in West Africa. I've swam in the Pacific Ocean with these things on. You all probably think I'm amazing. (laughs) But they've got this, these are mirrored. I've got another pair that are more brown tint. I'm a big fan of the aviators. I don't do the Ray-Ban style. It's just not my personality. I'm the aviator style guy. And uh, whether you think it looks nice or not, I think I look nice. Um, But when I put these on, everything in the room has this kind of brownish tint to it, right? It affects the way I see. I've got another pair of uh, glasses up here. I went and bought some readers at the drugstore. These make my eyes hurt. But many of you in this room have to wear things like this, right? And I'm, I am ruining the day when that's coming. Um, yeah, you wear these long enough, if you don't need them, your eyes start to hurt. But they magnify things, right? You put them on, and they affect the way you see the world. And for many of you, the text that you're trying to read, right? I've also got another lens up here. Um, I, I do cameras. I've got a really nice camera. And uh, somebody gave me an old camera that didn't work anymore, and I started tinkering with it and tearing it apart just to see how it works. That's just kind of the personality I have. This is the front casing and the main lens off of a telephoto lens. And uh, if you put it on a piece of paper, this works way better than a magnifying glass. It also will start a fire, but I'm just told that. <laughs> Never experienced it myself. So, but by holding it out here, first of all, all of you look upside down. And John Courtney's face is a little distorted. Well, that's normal. Now, every, looking through the lens changes the way you see the world, right? Whatever lens you're talking about, it's going to affect how you see. And based on, you know, what the laughing that I got from when I put on the glasses, probably the way you see me, right? All right, so lenses affect the way you see. And so a worldview, like a lens, it affects the way you see reality, doesn't it? Philippians chapter 3. I don't know if you know the Apostle Paul's story, depending upon your church background. Um, it's a doozy, though. The Apostle Paul was, um, he was on the fast track to becoming a big deal Pharisee. He was a young, up-and-coming guy. Uh, if you don't know who the Pharisees are, they were the religious ruling class of Jesus' day. Think of them kind of as a political social party. All right, no, uh, they, they, had, they had some clout, they had some carry. All right? uh, they they kind of set the standard for the culture around them and they were incredibly religiously mindful. All right? uh, they structured their lives in a way uh, that was literally trying to live out the Ten Commandments and be pleasing to God and they were far more religious than you and I ever will be. And Paul was the next star that was about to shoot, right? right? Paul was the guy whose star was on the rise. He studied under a guy named Gamaliel which is the guy you definitely wanted to study under in those days. Uh, he, was, uh, he, he was this guy that was 
incredibly brilliant, he was incredibly articulate, and he was going to be the next big deal. And then this little sect called the Christians started messing with things. Started talking about Jesus rising from the dead. Well, he didn't, he didn't like that too much. See, the Pharisees, they didn't like Jesus or his followers, but Paul was a doer, not a thinker. So he's going to fix it. So he started arresting and persecuting and harassing this little sect that he saw as a cult. This offshoot that had tarnished all the good things that was Judaism. So he started arresting them. He started persecuting them. Then he started murdering them. Like, to call Paul a terrorist isn't just fair, it's kind of necessary. Paul was the guy, the great persecutor of the early church. But in his head, what was he doing? He was protecting everything he held dear, right? As Paul was on his way to the city of Damascus to persecute some more Christians, he has a little interaction with Jesus. And in a booming voice, and in a bright light that the Bible tells us blinded him, Jesus introduces himself to Paul. He dresses him down. Saul, Saul. Saul was his name before he met Jesus. He changed his name in order to change his identity as a way of saying I'm a new man. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he dresses Jesus down. Basically says, hey, you're on my team now. You know what Paul's reaction is? Okay. <laughs> There's no dialogue there. There's no, hey, let me sleep on it for a few days. Think about it. Pray about it. There's, there's not a back and forth debate. Well, there's no deal made of, hey, I'll follow you if you do these things for me. Jesus is like, you're on my team. And Paul's like, yes, sir. And so the great persecutor of the church, the terrorist murdering this tiny little Christian sect, becomes the greatest missionary church planter protector of doctrine the church will ever know, probably. So what changed? What changed is that Paul caught a vision of something far more valuable than everything else. Philippians chapter 3. Philippi had a lot of good things going on, but one of their issues... One of their issues was this group of people called the Judaizers, Jewish Eizers, Judaizers, who would come in after Paul left the church and start saying, yeah, God's nice and all, Jesus is great, but if you really want to make God happy, you need to do all the things that Jewish people do. Which was opposite of what Paul was teaching in a grace-centered teaching as he planted these churches, but they would wait for Paul to leave and they would kind of slip in through the back door, infiltrate the, the group of people. And, hey, that's, Jesus is great, but if you really want to please God, you need to follow the ceremonial washings. And you need to align your diet with the Jewish diet of only eating certain things. And if you really want to make God happy, gentlemen, circumcision. 
So the stakes are high here, right? So Paul begins to address this type of thinking in Philippians 3, verse 1. Let's look at it. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul's argument here and in other places that he's dealing with the same kind of problem because this problem creeps up in all the churches that he's working with. The, the Paul's argument here is that, hey, that, that physical sign of God's covenant, and that's what circumcision was, it was a physical marking on Jewish men to say that these are the covenant people of God. All right? So Paul's argument is, hey, you know that physical marking that you have? It's, it's only ever a physical mark. And it doesn't change anything on a heart level. See, what you need is to be changed on a heart level. And that those who put their faith in Jesus, Paul's argument here is, for that those who put their faith in Jesus, they are spiritually and metaphorically circumcised on a heart level and are therefore the true people of God. He says, you can, you can have your physical mark. It doesn't matter. If you don't belong to God on a heart level, who cares? That's Paul's argument here. Look at verse 3 again. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul here says, hey, if, if you want to have a little conversation, a little showdown about who's more Jewish, I win. And he starts listing all the ways he wins. Did you catch him? He says, circumcised on the eighth day. That was the, that was the command for Jewish boys to be circumcised on, the eight, on their eighth day birthday. Is that how that works? Eight days old? All right. Um, and so Paul here is not just the guy who white-knuckled his way into religious actions. No, Paul's got pedigree. He comes from a family that followed the rules, right? He comes from a family that did all the right things. Paul came into this game as a blue blood. It says, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself. There's some debate over what exactly that means. Uh, the camp that I'm in thinks that that means that Paul is a pure Hebrew speaker. What language are they speaking in, modern, in Israel in the first century? It ain't Hebrew. They're speaking Aramaic. And in the trade markets, they're speaking Greek, Right? There's a reason why the New Testament is written in Greek. And Jesus and his boys, as they're walking around doing their three-year public ministry, they're speaking Aramaic and Greek. Aramaic was this kind of corrupted version of Hebrew. It's Hebrew-like, but not. Paul says, hey, when I go home at night in my house, we're speaking Hebrew. Paul's hanging on to the purity of his culture when everybody else is running the wrong direction. He says, Born on the, or circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, he calls himself. The Pharisees were the group of people who, above everybody else, 
structured their lives to be obedient to God's command. Pharisees had everybody beat when it came to obedience to God's law. And Paul was the guy making those Pharisees look a little awkward. As to the law, Pharisee, and he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Like, hey, you want to measure how zealous you are for the Jewish rules? I'm murdering everybody who breaks them. That was Paul's game. If you put Paul in the Judaizers and lock them in a little who's more Jewish cage match, Paul is walking out with the belt over his shoulder every single time. So what in the world does any of this have to do with worldview? Paul was the man who not only succeeded in being more Jewish than everybody else, he found his identity in being a better Jew than the guy standing next to him. He was the guy who could stand up and puff out his chest and say, you want to go? He didn't, have to, he didn't have to be fearful that it, he wasn't going to come out on top. Paul was the guy. He was the guy. Everything in Paul's world revolved around and was aimed at being a better Jew than the guy standing next to him. So much so that when this little Christian sect broke out from Judaism and started wrecking things, his worldview didn't just, just, didn't just allow for the persecution of them. It required it. He had to stop them. Right? Paul says, As to zeal, the persecutor of the church. Because Paul saw his Jewish identity as the defining characteristic of his life and because this little Christian sect was beginning to turn the world upside down. Paul had to do something about it. But like I said before, then Jesus introduced himself to Paul. Look at verse 7. What's the first word in that sentence? But. But whatever gain I had, I counted as what? A loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, so if you need a translator of what Paul just said, and you probably shouldn't, but in case you do, here's what it is. All that stuff doesn't matter to me anymore because I found Jesus. Right? That's what he said. But don't think, don't think on religious terms. Get your head out of 21st century. He got God. He got saved. He got him some Jesus. No, think relationship. He got God, the infinitely almighty. Paul is walking in personal relationship with him. And if that's true, is there any other option for everything else to fade into the background? Think about that. Does anything sit next to God on the table of awesome? Anybody going to go, 
I got God and also my Jewish identity. No. Not if you're seeing him correctly, right? Everything fades into the background. It's Paul's Jewish identity, the thing that mattered to him more than anything else, the thing that defined and shaped his life more than anything else, he now looks at and says, eh, I don't care. It can go. But it's also deeper than that. Because Paul's not done writing. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Some of your translations may say dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the things that Paul sets aside because he would rather have Jesus is not simply something that's now less important to him, all right? So according to what we just read in that text, there's, there's, there's more of a, of a distinction there. And there's two Greek words that we need to look at in order to kind of make sense of that. The first one is the word that we uh, translate as counted here. It's the word hegiomai. Everybody say hegiomai. Congratulations, you're Greek scholars, all right? Hegiomai means to reckon. To reckon. That's not a word that we use in 21st century New England. It is a word that you probably saw in a Western movie you watched this weekend. To reckon. Spurs jangling, swaggering out the, the bar style doors. The deal is about to go down, right? What does reckon mean? It means to put things right, it means to place things and bring justice and put things in their correct place. That's what a reckoning is. Paul says, I counted all of those things, all those Jewish things that used to define me and shape my life and be the things that I chased after in this world. I counted them, considered them, aligned them to the correct place. Considered them, saw them. You ever had someone or something that you saw in a certain way, put in a certain category, and then they... Let's talk about a person. Like They said or did something. I'm thinking the same thing about your phone right now. They said, you saw somebody in a certain way. Hear me. That you saw somebody in a certain way and then they said or did something and immediately there was a change. I think all of us have been there, right? And you can't unsee or unhear what you just saw or heard, right? And, and from that point forward, they're in a different category. That's what it means to reckon. Paul had a moment where he saw something so clearly that all the things he used to hold as his most important things in life shifted and became something else. 
Paul had a vision of something that was infinitely more valuable than all the things he used to value. Or probably more accurately, Paul had a vision of someone. The second word in the Greek that we need to look at is the word that we translate as rubbish. Some of your translations may say dung. Both of those are good translations. Because in that sense, the Greek word, is the actual vocabulary word is less important than the tone behind it. And the tone behind it is that of vileness or danger. It's harmful. Like whenever we think of dung, we think of something gross, right? That's the first thought that kind of floods our mind. Ew. But what if you like made friends with it? That's, that goes deeper than ew. There's harm there, right? There's a vileness. There's a, there's a corruption there, right? If you were to consume that, it would be harmful to you. Paul in an instant goes... This is valuable to me. This is what I'm chasing after in this world. This is the thing that defines and shapes my life. And in an instant, he sees Jesus and it moves from the category of most valuable to not simply distancing myself from, but this is harmful to me. Paul takes everything that defined who he was as a Jewish superstar. And he immediately feels the need to distance himself from it because it is now dangerous to him. Whether you translate it as rubbish or dung doesn't matter. Hear the weightiness of this. Get away from me. That's what he's saying here. So Paul says that all of the things that define and shape his life are not simply less important because of the relationship with Jesus, but they have been formally placed in the category of harmful to him from now on. Paul sees the world and his place in it in an entirely different way. He's been given new lenses to see the world and his place in it. But remember, we're talking about ultimate realities here, right? This goes much deeper than just a brown tint on the world that you're looking at. Like, I can head down to Lens Crafters and spend a few hours picking out my style and picking out this or that. I can buy the most expensive sunglasses money can buy, but none of those things affect anything if I'm actually legally blind. Doesn't matter how much time I spend picking or how much cash I drop on the table, the best pair of glasses in the world won't do anything for me if I can't see at all. Paul has been given new eyes to see. When I say worldview, I want you to be thinking new eyes. For those of you who have submitted to King Jesus, your life is not simply marked by some Christian distinctives. It's structured around something entirely different. 
It's shaped by and defined by and ultimately judged through an entire new worldview that values Jesus and his kingdom over and above everything else. It has reckoned the world in a distinctly different way than what the rest of the world does. But don't hear this, or Paul can, Paul can say to a crowd of Judaizers that he doesn't need his flawless Jewish identity anymore because his identity in Jesus is far better. He can tell them confidently, confidently, that to hold on to his Jewish identity, and don't mishear me, he invokes it a few times for his purposes, but only ever as a tool. Paul here says that to the Judaizers, listen, for me to hang on to that as, this, as if it's important to me is actually a step backwards for me. Paul's been given new eyes to see. And because of that, he sees the world and his place in it in an entirely different way. But don't hear this as a call to white-knuckle your way into a better representation of Christendom. There is a place for discipline. There is a place for what the Puritans used to call the mortification of the flesh, the idea of putting your sin to death. We'll talk about that one of these days. But Paul would have listed effort as one of his former virtues. The thing that changed Paul wasn't a, a decided effort. What was it? It was a picture of someone better. Hello? It was a picture of someone more valuable, so valuable that he was willingly and joyfully able to set it all down and chase that instead. The thing that changed Paul was a clear picture of who Jesus is. It was a picture that immediately made everything else he was chasing after a problem to be dealt with rather than something to just syncretize and square up to everything else in his life. When I say worldview, I want you to be thinking new eyes. So how do we respond this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, can I ask you a tough question? Do you define, chase after, structure your life in such a way that everything revolves around you getting a little bit more of Jesus? And if not, why not? Is there anything that compares to him? I mean, you're selling yourself short, right? Jesus plus this is a sad substitute for Jesus. You're failing yourself here. Do the people around you that you live with, work with, go to school with, whatever your world is, do they see from up close and from a distance somebody who has reckoned things differently than they do? Someone who sees the world through the lens, through the worldview of Jesus is better than everything else. Are you here this morning and you're thinking that, that the way you define, structure, and shape your life could not fairly be called Christ-like.
We can do something about that today. There's a place for effort, but what you need more than anything else is a big God. You need to see him as he is because all those things fail, fade in comparison. They lose their sparkle and shine in his presence. So if that's you this morning, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and be your chance to ask tough questions of your heart. Like real questions. Don't let yourself off the hook with vague stuff this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to respond however God might be calling you to respond. Maybe you're here this morning and it's pretty obvious to you that you have not been given new eyes to see. And you don't know this Jesus that we're talking about. We can fix that today too. I'd love to introduce you. How you do that? You come to him in repentance and faith. Coming to him in Lord in coming to his lordship in full submission. God, I'm yours. I trust what you've done. The Bible teaches us that our sin separates us from a holy God, but God, God sends his son, Jesus, to bridge the gap of that sin debt by dying on the cross in our place. And that all who put their faith and trust in him get him. So if that's you this morning, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It'll be your chance to respond. However, God might be calling you to respond. If you need to talk to somebody, we're going to have some people down here in the front. One of them's me. I'd love to talk to you. When I say worldview, I want you thinking new eyes. Let's pray. Father God, you are good. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for Paul's story in Philippians 3. Thank you that... You were gracious enough to save the terrorist. Thank you that you were big enough to use even him. God, I want eyes like Paul. I want eyes that see you as you really are. And do so in such a way that everything else doesn't matter anymore. Where I can take all the things that used to define me and set them down. Maybe to be used as a tool for some other time, but who cares if I never get around to it. Even be willing to to lay down my life itself. Because you are worth more than even that. Oh, that I may, by any means possible, attain the resurrection of the dead. God, our hope and our prayer is that every person in this room this morning, myself included, we get a clear picture of who you are. Because when we see you for who you are, we will never be the same. So show yourself to us this morning. Stir in us decisions for your glory this morning, God. And as we sing, and as we pray, and as we get ready to participate in the Lord's Supper, would you remind us of your bigness and your love for us and what you have done, God. So in your name we pray. Amen.